That was interesting. No, it, it definitely teaches us the truth of God's Word being the light for the world. And so we appreciate Howard and the group uh, showing that. Uh, you may be wondering where's Howard this morning. He and several of our youth and some of our youth leaders are all uh, traveling back from San Antonio. They were at a conference this weekend. So be praying for them as they travel back. And so as a result of that, we are not having children's chat in person. So I'm going to send out the kids. If you're going to children's worship, which I think is kindergarten through second, right? It's out that door. And then three through six, out that door and go upstairs. All right. All right. Good morning. We are so glad that you're here worshiping with us this morning. As we get started, I would like for us to spend just a moment or two praying uh, for our world. Uh, as you know, this past week, the last few days have been uh, quite interesting with things that are going on in Eastern Europe. And so we want to be praying for uh, Ukraine and the situation happening over there. So here are some things that I picked up this week from uh, a mission organization that shared with us some ways we can be praying. Uh, let's pray for safety and protection of Ukrainian citizens and the military personnel, and for that matter, military personnel on both sides. Uh, pray for the Ukrainian church leaders as they care for the church members that are affected by this conflict. Pray for displaced missionaries. Uh, as they are looking for opportunities to minister to those who remain in danger. Pray for the Ukrainian people to look to the gospel of Jesus Christ for hope during this challenging situation. Pray for followers of Jesus to arise as messengers of his hope to the hopeless and the oppressed. And then let's pray for God to give leaders of the United States as well as other countries wisdom and courage as they make decisions in the coming days and weeks. And I know there may be other ways that we should be praying for uh, Ukraine and Russia and those people involved and, and other nations as people are, are um, uh, fleeing from U Ukraine to other countries. Uh, so let's take a moment to pray for our world right now. <clears throat> Father, we're reminded through all of this that we are your people, yes, but so are other believers all over this globe. And so, Father, we pray this morning for those that are followers of Jesus um, in Ukraine and Russia and in Eastern Europe, that you would bring hope and peace to them, that you'd bring safety and protection, that they would look to you for guidance and direction, and, and that, that you would uh, help them overcome fears that they may be facing. I pray that you'd remove physical harm. God, I pray that you'd bring uh, calmer heads into the situation so that um, further issues will not develop. God, I pray for missionaries as they look for opportunities to care for um, those that are there in the country and those that are fleeing to other countries. God, I pray that in the middle of everything going on that we would remember that our hope is in you, not in a, a government and not in leaders. And, and while those people are important and we want them to thrive and do well and lead uh, nations to, in a way that would honor you, God, we know at the end of the day that our hope is found in you. And so, Father, I pray that you would bring hope <clears throat> to so many people there in Ukraine as well as in Russia, that you, would, um, that you would do the work that only you can do and that we would trust you in the middle of it all. Father, may we, um, that may we uh, in our lives bring uh, glory to you and hope to you as, as we maybe have conversations with others in our lives that are talking about what's going on and may we always constantly point them to you. Father, may you be glorified in the midst of a difficult time, and God, may lives be changed for the good of the gospel uh, because of the hope that's found in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Let me grab some water as my throat, my, my voice is trying to do its thing again today. All right, if I have not had a chance to meet you yet, I'm Alan, I'm uh, the senior pastor here as well as one of the elders, and we are thrilled that you are worshiping with us here in the building or, or if you're worshiping online. 
Again, as I've been saying the last several weeks, if you're worshiping online and you need to do that for health reasons, we understand, but at the same time, we would love to have you back in the building. And so as soon as you can get back here in the building with us, we would definitely appreciate that because we know that we benefit from your presence and obviously you benefit from being around other members of your church family. Um, if you uh, have not had a chance to meet you, me yet, I would love, if, let me back that up. If I have not had a chance to meet you, that's the way I should say it. If I've not had a chance to meet you, um, then I would love to have that opportunity. At the end of the service, I'll be out in the foyer. You can kind of swing by and say howdy. Also, as I mentioned on the video, there is a connection card that is available in your chair as well as online at The Hope. Uh, we would love to be able to get that information so we can contact you, let you know what's going on in the life of our church, and just thank you for being a part of our service today. Hopefully when you came in, you picked up a worship guide on the back of the worship guide is, uh, uh, some ser- are some sermon notes that you can follow along with us, and you'll see on here that we are, as a church family, walking through the book of Acts this year. And so we are now in Acts chapter 2. If you've got a Bible with you, um, then go ahead and open that up to Acts chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in a chair near you. And if you uh, don't have a Bible at the house, feel free to take that with you. That'll be our gift to you. So as the book of Acts opens uh, in chapter 1, we see in the first five verses of chapter 1 a summary of the 40 days that fall between Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' ascension. And then beginning in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, through the remainder of chapter 1, and all of chapter 2, except for the last six verses, it's about 10 days of Jesus' life. And so the bulk of chapter 1, the bulk of chapter 2, all but 11 verses in total, are about... Uh, the 10 days between when Jesus ascended into heaven and when the Holy Spirit came. And you may be wondering, well, what's that all about? Let's look back at Acts chapter 1, verse 8. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we have the key verse of all of the book. And and here's what Jesus says. As he's getting ready to ascend into heaven, he says to his, his disciples, but you will receive power... When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so Jesus is saying, I'm about to ascend into heaven, and when I do, at some point in the near future, the Holy Spirit, part of the Trinity, part of God himself, one of the persons of the Trinity, will come and be with you. And the purpose of the Spirit coming is to give you power that you might go out and be my witnesses all over the world. And so that's kind of what's going on as they're waiting for the Holy Spirit to show up. And then last week in chapter 2, verse 4, we see that the Holy Spirit does show up. And he shows up with power and authority. And it begins in verse 1, but let's look at verse 4. It says, and they, talking about all the disciples, all the believers in Jesus, approximately about 120 people, were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The Holy Spirit showed up in power and began to give these followers of Jesus the ability to speak in languages that were real languages, but that these individuals had never learned on their own. And so the work of God was in them in order to proclaim the gospel to those around them. So in that moment, we see that the uh, people that heard it and saw it presumed that these followers of Jesus must be drunk. I mean, why else are they babbling and not making sense? And Peter, one of the apostles, stands up and says, hey guys, it's early in the morning. This is not what's going on. No one's drunk. Rather, the Holy Spirit has showed up and he is fulfilling what was said would happen in the last days when 
the power of the Holy Spirit would come upon the followers of Jesus. And then in Acts chapter 2, verse 5, we see that the reason this took place is because there were believers from every nation, or sorry, there were people, not believers, there were people from every nation under heaven there. And so we see that Acts 1-8 is beginning to be lived out as the power of the Holy Spirit came upon Peter. He began to preach it, and then people from all over the then known world are hearing the gospel of Jesus. And so Acts 1-8 is not being fulfilled, but it's beginning to be fulfilled by the bold proclamation of the gospel through Peter. So now that is what brings us to the message today. We're going to read the the heart of the message that Peter preached that day. It's found in Acts chapter 2 beginning in verse 22 and we're going to read through verse 41. After Peter had described that the Holy Spirit had come according to what the prophecy of God's word in the Old Testament had said, now he begins to preach the heart of his message beginning in Acts chapter 2 verse 22. Men of Israel Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, meaning Jesus, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then he says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, I know that as I read this, some of this story may be very familiar to you. 
And some of it may be a little bit confusing. You're like, okay, here's Peter. He's talking about Jesus. He's talking to the apostle about the, with the apostles. He's talking to these other people from all over the, the world. And then he begins to talk about David, and he's reading all this stuff. What is all of this about? So we're going to kind of walk through bit by bit to try, bit by bit to try to make sense of this. Um, you'll see on the back of your, your outline that there is a description here of what it means to be a witness of Jesus. Acts 1.8 said that we're to be witnesses to all nations, to all people about what Jesus has done. And so the question that we're looking at, or the answer, the, the answer to the question we're looking at is, is, is what does it mean to be a witness? The first thing on your note says that a witness focuses on Jesus. A, a witness focuses on Jesus. Did you see there in verse 22 that the very first thing that Peter does is he begins to talk about Jesus. When, when he's given the opportunity to proclaim the gospel, when he's given an, an audience to share something with them, he doesn't beat around the bush. He jumps immediately to talk about Jesus. He addresses them. He says, men of Israel, that's who's there. Uh, uh, people that are followers uh, of Judaism that, that are there for the festival uh, of Pentecost. And he says, here's what I want you to hear. And the very first word out of his mouth is Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, I'm sorry, Peter immediately begins to tell the audience or the crowd or the congregation about Jesus. So a witness is one who begins to tell the story of Jesus. In verses 22 through 24, we're going to kind of look at each one individually, we see a very clear description of the Christology of Jesus. What, what is Christology? It just is the word Christ and ology, so the study of Christ. And so the, the word Christology simply means the person of Christ, his nature, his role. And we're going to seek to understand who Jesus is in these three verses, verses 22 through 24. So in verse 22, he refers to him as Jesus of Nazareth. He says he is a man. He was attested to you by God and that God used might works, wonders, and signs in their midst that you yourselves have seen. So in verse 22, the thing that we see about who Jesus is, is that he is God in the flesh. The word that we use for this is the incarnation. That God took on flesh in the form of his son, Jesus, so that Jesus is not only man, but he's God. Fully God, fully man, 100% each. That math doesn't make sense, but it is true that God took on the flesh of a man. So here's Jesus. He's a man from Nazareth, but he's more than a man because he's God in the flesh. And we see that God attests to that. The word in the ESV is that he attested to that or he confirmed or he proved that God did work in and through Jesus. He did mighty works. He did wonders. He did signs. And it's clear that Jesus is God. The word sign, perhaps you're familiar with that word, as we walked through the book of John earlier last year, we, we said that there are seven occasions in the book of John, the gospel of John, where Jesus does various signs that shows he is the Messiah. These signs are not like circus tricks. These signs are not like magic tricks. Rather, the signs would be miraculous things that Jesus did in miracles and healings and bringing people back from the dead that all pointed not to the sign or the miracle, but it pointed to him because he is God. He is Messiah. And so here's Peter. He's saying, you can't deny it. 
You, you may not believe in Jesus, but you can't deny it. In verse 22, he says, you saw this. He's happened in your midst. You're aware that Jesus did these miracles. And so we see that Jesus is God in the flesh. The next verse, verse 23, we not only see that Jesus is incarnated, but he also experienced the crucifixion. Verse 23, it says, it's this Jesus that was delivered up according to God's definite plan and his foreknowledge, and you crucified and you killed Jesus by the hands of lawless men. What I want us to see in verse 23 is that the crucifixion, the death of Jesus, is God's plan first and foremost. And while it's God's definite plan, it's also at the hands of lawless men. In other words, it's God's plan, and yet there's human responsibility for the death of Jesus. Now, here's the question. Who are these lawless men? Here's Peter saying, you had him killed, and it was God's plan. It was God's definite plan from the beginning of time, before the foundations of the world, that Jesus would be crucified, but you have responsibility too because you handed him over to lawless men. So that would be the religious leaders, that would be the, 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 the Roman um, people who, who had him crucified. But I also want us to see that this term, lawless men, actually refers to the, uh, to the crowd. Because not only did, did, did Jesus get crucified by the authorities, but the crowd also is responsible for Jesus' death. So what he's trying to do is, he's trying to identify with this crowd, you yourselves are guilty of the death of Jesus. And the reality is, you and I are guilty of the death of Jesus as well. See, we weren't walking this planet 2,000 years ago, but why did Jesus die? Because it was God's definite plan. Why was it God's definite plan? His plan was that sin had to be punished. Who's a sinner? You and I. And it's our sin that put Jesus on the cross, was it not? And so if it's our sin that put him on the cross, then you and I are those lawless men that are responsible for the death of Jesus as well. So what Peter is trying to establish is guilt need for a savior sin is in our lives and that sin must be atoned for and jesus death is for that purpose one other thing i want us to see in this verse is the word plan it says that it was god's definite plan that jesus would die on the cross the the word plan is a greek word boule it's spelled b-o-u-l-e and that word means god's counsel god's will god's purpose god's foreordained plan everything that takes place in our world and in our lives is intended for god's glory and god's purposes and so whenever we read in the, in the book of Acts over and over again, in the Greek, that word's going to show up 10 or 15 times as it describes that God's plan is at work. So one other thing in this verse, I, I, I didn't say it maybe exactly, but read the middle of verse 23. It says that you crucified and killed. You crucified and killed. We killed Jesus too. Verse 23, sorry, 24, verse 24. So we see his incarnation, we see his crucifixion, now we see his resurrection. Verse 24, God raised Jesus up. He loosed the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. 
The work of Jesus is not complete without his resurrection. You see, Jesus is not dead in a tomb. Jesus died. Three days later, he was resurrected to life. And remember, Peter is saying, you can't deny this. You saw it. You know this took place. You heard the word on the street. This was only 50 days prior. You know that Jesus was raised from the dead. I love the picture that it describes. It's saying Jesus is like tied down by death, but he can't be held back. He busts out of those those ropes. He he loosed the pangs of death. Do you know what the word pangs means? It's not a word, means, yeah. I don't use that word very often, but pangs is actually the word in the Greek that has to do with childbearing. Now, mamas, are you able to hold back those birth pangs and those childbearing things? No. Like when the baby, I, I know I didn't really talk very um, like uh, professionally right there, but hopefully you understand. So here's the deal. When a mama's about to give birth, she can't hold that baby back, right? And so that, I mean, sometimes babies are born prematurely because they try to slow down the, the labor and it just doesn't happen. Well, Jesus was in the tomb and there was nothing that could hold him back. And that just as a birth pain brings about new life Jesus was resurrected because death could not hold him back the tomb had no hold on him this week as I prepared it I thought of an old school song from the 80s or 90s uh, I think new song sang it and I won't even try to sing it but it just was this powerful song that talked about how death has no hold on Jesus I love the fact that it says, look, look, look at, at verse 24. It says it was not possible. It was impossible for death to hold him down. Do you know what the word possible here is in the Greek? It's dunamis, dynamite, power. There's no power over, death has no power over Jesus because the power of the resurrection dwarfs it in comparison. So what we want to see here is that Jesus was resurrected just as he said he would be. So Jesus was a man, fully God, fully man, took on the flesh of man. He lived and did ministry and did work and taught and, and, and brought about miracles. God used that to attest the fact that he is the Messiah, he is the Christ, he is the promised one, that he is God in the flesh. And then we see that he was killed for our sins and that lawless men killed him and crucified him. And then we see that he's resurrected. I know what some of us are thinking. If you grew up in church, you're like, okay, Alan, that's not anything new to me. Like, I've heard this a bunch of times. This story should never get old. This story is what brings salvation and sustains us through life. This is the story that people in Russia and Ukraine and and Ethiopia and Nigeria and, 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 and Guatemala and you name the nation that needs to hear that story today. And remember what he said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that the Holy Spirit will come upon us to give us power to be witnesses in Judea and and Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, that's not the end of the story of Jesus. Like, to understand his his story, the Christology, we got to keep going. We're going to skip a few verses. We'll come back to those in a moment. But look down in verse 29. In Acts chapter 2, verse 29, we see that, that, that Peter is explaining what he just said in, in, in the verses before that, as he quoted David, the psalmist. And he says in 29, 
Brothers, I, I say to you with confidence that King David, he, he, he died, he was buried, his tomb is still there with us today. But in verse 20, 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. This is about Jesus the Messiah. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that Christ was not abandoned to death. And then verse 32, this Jesus God raised up and of that we're all witnesses. And then 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured him out upon us. So what we see is, yes, that Jesus was resurrected, but what happened after his resurrection? He ascended. And he's on the throne today. Jesus is on the throne today. He is just as much in charge as he ever was before he walked this planet and while he was on this planet and after that. Jesus is on his throne. He is king. He is sovereign. He is the true king. This David that Peter's referring to is King David. Perhaps you're familiar with King David, right? The second king of Israel. And Peter says that David wrote some words down, but the reality is this, that the words that he wrote is about the ascended, reigning, ruling Messiah, Jesus Christ. He's the true king. He's reigning on David's throne, if you will. It's not really David's throne. It's the Father's throne and, and, and the throne room of heaven, and it's in reference to fulfillment of a prophecy. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16. God's talking to David, and he's telling David that he will have a descendant that will reign forever. David presumably thinks that he's talking about his son Solomon and those that would fall in line after him. But if you know much of the story of Israel, you know uh, in the year 586 that they are overthrown and there's no more kings over Israel. And yet what God tells David in 2 Samuel 7.16 is true in the life of Jesus. It says, in your house, David, in your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Jesus, when he ascended to heaven, took the throne and he is there today. Whatever life throws your way, know that Jesus is sovereign over it all. And that we can have confidence in his authority and in his reign and in his rule and that we because we serve the king are to be pointing others to the hope that's found in him as well verse 33 tells us something interesting it says that the father gave the holy spirit to the son in verse 33 yes let's see Sometimes my eyes don't want to see small numbers on my page. Verse 33, we have a picture of the Trinity, the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Look at 33, and you'll see all three persons of, the whole, of, of God. It says, being therefore, talking about Jesus, exalted at the right hand of God, and having received the, from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, Jesus has poured out the Holy Spirit, and you have seen this and heard this today. So the work of, the, of Jesus continues as he pours his Holy Spirit out on followers of him today. So he's still reigning and in charge to this day. So we see in this story, in this account, that Jesus 
was incarnated, God in the flesh. He was killed for our sins and that our sins put him there, that he was resurrected on the third day, that he ascended into heaven, that he's on the throne today, that he's pouring out his Holy Spirit on those of us that are his followers. So, we see that Peter is pointing to the fact that he is an eyewitness to everything that took place. And what does an eyewitness do? He tells the story. And you may be thinking, but Alan, I'm not an eyewitness. I wasn't there 2,000 years ago. I didn't see Jesus walking in the flesh. I didn't see him be crucified. I didn't see him be resurrected. I didn't see him ascend into heaven. But the reality is we are witnesses of it, even though we weren't eyewitnesses, because the witness that we have is found in God's true word, and we read about what took place in the life of Jesus, and we have experienced it personally if we placed our faith and our trust in Jesus. And so you and I, although we're not eyewitnesses like Peter was, you and I are witnesses of what Christ has done in his word and in our lives and it's our job to go out and witness to that truth with others so let's go out in the power of the Holy Spirit and be his witness how do we do that how are we to be witnesses to those in our lives to our, our friends our neighbors our co-workers people we meet in the grocery store or in the parking lot or wherever we may be how, how do we how are we telling the story of Jesus? How are we witnesses to what we've experienced? Hear all of my words. Don't take them bits and pieces. As important and as powerful as our testimony is, and as important and powerful as our study of God's word is on other matters, the reality is this. The only way that we can faithfully proclaim the hope that's found in Christ is to simply tell the story of Jesus. I titled this message, It's All About Jesus. And so Peter doesn't say, hey guys, this is what happened in my life. I was a fisherman, I was proud, and I was arrogant, and I stepped up and said things. And Jesus once said that I, I was Satan and he needed to be behind him. No, Jesus, uh, Peter jumped right to the story of Jesus. I'm not saying don't tell your story to other people. But telling our story to other people and, and telling them right doctrine is not telling them about Jesus. It's not sharing the gospel. Let's jump to the real story, and that's the life and ministry and work of Jesus. If you're looking for an outline of what to tell others about Jesus, I just read one of those outlines. Let's read another one. P, uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, this is verse 1, of the gospel that I preached to you. And here's the gospel. This gospel saves us. It holds fast to the word that he's preached to us. And then in verse 3, here is the gospel. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, then to the twelve, the apostles, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and then last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me, Paul says. So if you're looking for how to be a witness to others, just tell the story of Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 7 or 8, is a great outline that you could use to share the gospel with those around you. It's all about 
Jesus. Our witness must focus on Jesus. Here's a couple questions I have for you. When was the last time, and when I use the word preach, I'm not talking about on this stage, I'm talking about proclaiming. When is the last time that you clearly and boldly preached Jesus like Peter did in Acts chapter 2? When is the last time that you sat face to face, had a conversation with a friend, a family member, a coworker, someone you met uh, at the baseball field? When's the last time that you sat and talked with someone and you clearly and boldly proclaimed Jesus and his work? Not your example, not your smile, not your kindness, not your morality. Don't get me wrong, those things are helpful. Don't Preach Jesus with a scowl on your face. Preach him with a smile on your face. But none of those things are what brings salvation. We literally must preach Jesus. Along those lines, that second point on your note says that a witness proclaims Jesus is Lord and Christ. Look down in verse 36. In verse 36, he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. To preach Jesus means to point to the fact that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. And what Peter does is he uses Old Testament prophecy to make his point. It's interesting, the prophecy that he points to in this text is not Jeremiah or Isaiah or Ezekiel or Daniel. He, He points to the book of Psalms. He knew that he was preaching to Jewish audience who would know all about King David. They would know about the Psalms. And so Peter goes to the Psalms and begins to point out that the Psalms point to Jesus. So the first Psalm he refers to is found in verses 25 and following. Verses 25 through verse 28, you may want to jot this down, comes from Psalm 16. It's Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. And what Peter says is, David wrote this, and at first glance, it looks like David is saying that he's not going to die. Like, that's not what it's teaching, though, because David says, you and I both know that David is dead. He's in the tomb. He's still buried today. You can read that in verses 29 and following. So he says, clearly, this text is not about David. He didn't write it about himself. Almost 30 years ago, that's a long time ago, almost 30 years ago, I had the uh, pleasure of being in Israel. And I was looking at my pictures uh, this past week, and there's a picture of me going into the area of David's tomb. And then there's pictures of two different places that perhaps one or the other, or maybe another place where Jesus was buried, but Jesus is not there. If you go to Jerusalem today, you can see where David is buried, and he is still buried there. But if you go to where Jesus was buried, you will not find him there. Because Jesus is alive. Yes, David's alive in the presence of God, because according to God's word, we can see that he's a follower of God, but he's not physically alive like you and I are alive. Jesus is Lord. And then he quotes a second psalm. You can find that quote in verses 34 and 35. David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And that's from Psalm 110, 
verse 1. He's saying David did not ascend into heaven like Jesus did. This is in reference, the Lord said to my Lord, it's about Jesus. So he uses those illustrations to point out that there's something unique and different about Jesus, that he is Lord, that he is the Christ. And then as I made reference a moment ago, we see that Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit on us, so he's obviously God himself. The word Lord. The word Lord in verse 36 is the first word in the order. It says that Jesus is Lord and Christ. This word Lord is the first one, so therefore more important for us to see. It's emphatic. It's the key title in this phrase. It takes nothing away from the word Christ, but the focus is first and foremost in the word Lord. What does the word Lord mean? In the Old Testament, perhaps you're familiar with the word Lord being there. In the Hebrew, it would have been the, the name Yahweh. So whenever you read the word Lord in the Old Testament, it's in reference to God himself, Yahweh. So then you get to the New Testament, and it says that Jesus is Lord. That means he is God himself. He is equal part of the triune God. So to say that Jesus is Lord means that he is God. It means that he's in charge of salvation, that he is sovereign. And then to say that he is Christ points to the fact that he is the promised deliverer. What does the word Messiah or Christ mean? It means the anointed one, the promised one, the one who would come and redeem and make things right and deliver us. So many times the people thought that that deliverance was military deliverance and government deliverance away from power that was in charge of us. But no, what the word Christ or Messiah means is to bring deliverance from our sins. So Jesus brings deliverance from sins, therefore he is the Christ. So we see here that Jesus is very God himself. He came and he died to bring forgiveness and to restore people back to himself. That Jesus is the Lord of salvation. There is no other way outside of Jesus. That he's God and he reigns in heaven. He's still at work today. And I love how he phrases this in verse 36. He says, let the house of Israel, why the house of Israel? Because they knew that uh, there is the Lord, that he is God, that they knew the Messiah would be coming. And they were familiar with the Old Testament. He's saying, guys, the Old Testament was pointing to Jesus all along. He is Lord. He is Christ. And he says, you can be certain of that. Did you know that the reason Luke, according to his own words, recorded his two volumes of work, the book of Luke and the book of Acts, why did Luke write those? He actually wrote them that we could be certain about who Jesus is. We see that in the prologue of his gospel. Look at Luke chapter 1, verse 4. He talks that he's writing this to his friend or the most excellent Theophilus, he's going to write down a, 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 um, a thorough explanation of what Jesus did and the ministry that he did. And why did he write it? In verse 4 it says that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So he wrote this down so that we could be certain 
about who Jesus is. And then here in Acts chapter 2, in verse 36, he says, Men of Israel, house of Israel, this is for you and I as well. We can know for certain that Jesus is Lord and Christ. And that makes all the difference in the world. So here's my question for you. Do you have certainty in your own life that Jesus is Lord and Christ? See, it's one thing to read about it. It's one thing to sing about it. It's one thing to even say it. It's another thing to say, hey, I intellectually understand that Jesus somehow is God. I don't really get it. I don't really understand it. I intellectually understand that he died on the cross and was raised again. But have you received that truth? Do you know for certain that Jesus is Lord in Christ? And have you asked him to be your Lord and Christ? It's a very telling set of verses that I'm about to read from Matthew chapter 7. And you can find it in some other places in the Gospels as well. But Jesus one day is talking to a crowd of people. And here's what he says. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. If I could have everybody's undivided attention, not wanting to scare anybody, I'm just wanting to ask you the question, do you just simply verbalize with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? Do you just live out certain things that say like, I go to church, I say a prayer, I talk about Jesus every now and again. Are you like these people that Jesus says, depart from me for I never knew you? Because the only way that we can be in the presence of God himself is to genuinely repent of our sins, come to him in faith, accept his grace and the work that he did for us on the cross and his resurrection. And that is the only way for salvation. So how sad would it be if we walked out of this room in just a moment and some of us in this room are watching online, you, you, you intellectually say, yeah, Jesus is Christ. Yes, Jesus is Lord. But you haven't personally experienced it through the forgiveness of your sins based on your repentance of your sins. Actually, based on God's work through Jesus that's experienced when we repent of our sins. Do you know for certain, personally speaking, that Jesus is your Lord and your Savior. Christians, if this is true, which it is, if we're able to know for certain that Jesus is Lord and Christ, do we see that this message is significant enough that you and I take the time to tell other people in our lives about this Jesus who is Lord and Christ. See, it's amazing to come together in this room of a couple hundred people and sing about Jesus, 
It's really cool to go to our hope groups and homes and talk about Jesus. It's really nice at times to be able to be in your home and talk with your family about Jesus and pray. But the question is this, has he impacted your life so much so that you and I are willing and able and bold and empowered by his Holy Spirit to go and tell others this truth? How many times have you... Maybe you had a conversation with somebody and you go, you know what, I hope, I hope I'm going to heaven or I hope I get up there someday or hope to see grandma when I die or whatever, you know. No, there, there's no hope to. We can be certain. If we trust in Jesus for our salvation, if we see that he is Lord and he is Christ, we can be certain. Now, I understand that, that very verse I read in Matthew chapter 7 says that part of that certainty is that it's a genuine decision that impacts our lives and then we have fruit that shows that we are really followers of Jesus, but we can be certain. So are you certain in your own life? And do you care enough about your friends and family to help them be certain as well? Let's look at the last one. A witness calls people to respond to Jesus. We see Peter do that very thing beginning in verse 37. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. He basically is done preaching. The congregation heard it. It says when they heard it, they were cut to the heart. It impacted them. They were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, then what shall we do? Peter didn't go, Well, I hope, I hope you remember what I said. I'm going to give a test tomorrow. I hope you remember it. Can't go over it again. No, no. Peter answers the question. Peter makes it clear. He doesn't dance around a bit and say, Well, yeah, be better people. Like, be better Jews. Like, go to the temple more often. Listen to the Pharisees a bit better. No, here's what he says. Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He tells them there are two things they need to do, and there are two steps they need to take, and there are two gifts that they'll receive. Two parts of a response. Here, let's look at the two responses. It's pretty clear. Repent of your sin. Repentance is the only proper response when we see our sin before a holy God. That's why Peter said, this man Jesus that you killed and crucified. That's why I'm saying to us, Jesus, that we killed and crucified because of our sin. The Bible says that all of us sin against God, that our sin is offensive to God, that he can have nothing to do with sin, that he is holy, perfect, separate from sin. It's very clear from Genesis 3 following that, that we are cast out of the presence of God whenever sin is there. But we also see from the Genesis chapter 3 and moving forward, actually, yeah, Genesis 3 moving forward, that, that God has a solution, and that solution is Jesus Christ. So whenever we see our sin... Do we just kind of press on and do our thing, or do we repent of that sin, acknowledging that we can't do anything on our own but trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins? This idea of repentance involves faith in Jesus and turning from our sin. 
It's agreeing with God that sin is sin and we need to be forgiven of our sin. And then he says not only repent there in verse 38, he also says to be baptized, every one of you. And on the surface, you might look at that and go, okay, does baptism bring salvation? No. Throughout Scripture, we see that baptism does not bring salvation. Rather, baptism is a step of obedience, that our faith is expressed through our baptism, that we don't experience regeneration or forgiveness of sin because of our baptism, that the water in the baptism does not wash away our sin, but it points to the fact that by faith in Jesus Christ that our sins have been washed away. Speaking of baptism, we were going to have a baptism today, but some that are interested in baptism couldn't make it happen today, and so we are probably going to have baptism on March 13th. And so my question to you is this. Have you come to faith in Jesus and not followed up with baptism? If that's you, then I want to encourage you to take the step of obedience and to be baptized. So the t- proper responses to Jesus is to repent of our sins and have faith in him and to experience baptism. And then we see two results that come about because of that. Keep looking at verse 38. Forgiveness of sin and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let's look at both of those. The result of our repentance and faith in Jesus is that our sins are forgiven. That we're made right with God again. And that the only way to be made right again with God is through the repentance of our sins, through the work of Jesus the Lord and Christ. And that because of our salvation, then Jesus gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit, that we have God inside of us, living inside of us, leading us to follow him more closely and empowering us to go out and tell others about Jesus as well. But I want us to see hand in hand with that what he says in verse 39. Yes, he says in 38, to repent of their sins. Yes, he calls them to make a decision. But look at verse 39. It says, for the promise is for you and for your children and for everyone, even those who are far off, the Gentiles, those that don't really consider themselves religious. It's available for all of us, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So we see it's not just a man-made decision, but it's actually the work of God within us that he is the one who calls us to salvation. So even while calling people to respond, we acknowledge that it's God who does the work. It's him who calls us. And then after he says that, it says in verse 40, I guess he's kind of like a preacher, kind of like me. Sometimes we don't know when to land the plane, so he keeps preaching, right? Although this is a good idea because they're saying, what do we do? Verse 40, and with many other words. This is not all of Peter's sermon. It's a synopsis of his sermon. But with many other words, he bore witness, and he continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. He doesn't mean do the work yourself, but experience the salvation that comes through Jesus because this generation is crazy. I think those words still apply today, right? We live in a fallen, broken, sinful world, and we need salvation. And Peter pleads with his audience and exhorts them to trust in Jesus. We don't have any recordings, obviously, of Peter's preaching, but I imagine he was pretty dynamic. 
I wouldn't call myself a dynamic uh, preacher, but I'm saying with Peter this morning, I'm exhorting you, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you don't recognize him as Lord in Christ, if you've not repented of your sins, trusted in him for salvation, today is the day for salvation. Today is the day. And you're called to exhort your friends and your family, and your co-workers, and people you bump into on the street to exhort them for salvation. So here's my question. I asked a moment ago, when's the last time you preached Jesus, proclaimed Jesus as boldly as Peter? You see, it doesn't stop with a proclamation of the gospel. It continues with exhorting them to respond and to repent. And so my question is, whenever you do talk with others about Jesus, do you call them to repentance? Oh, Alan, I wouldn't really want to do that. Like, I don't want to call them a sinner. Okay, they have to understand that they're a sinner to experience salvation. It's not, hey, let me tell you about Jesus so your marriage will be better. Hey, let me tell you about Jesus so you can have more finances. Let me tell you about Jesus so you can find a job. Let me tell you about Jesus so you can do this and that. Those other things may come. That's all right. But we need to hear about Jesus so that we can have our sins forgiven, so we can be made right with Jesus, and therefore we need to know we're a sinner to know we have a need for a Savior. So have you not only preached Jesus, have you invited people to respond? Do you have the courage to invite them to respond to Jesus? And even as I say that, hear me carefully here. It's never our job to close the deal. We're not the Holy Spirit. We can't close the deal, right? And besides, it's not a deal. Like, it's not some kind of business transaction. I'm just using that terminology. It's not our job to... to, uh, to uh, uh, it's not our job to make sure that everyone we preach to and ask for a response comes to faith in Jesus Christ. Our job is to be faithful in presenting Jesus telling them how they can experience forgiveness of their sins and asking them if that's what they want or if that's what God's doing in their lives. So here's, in summary, what I'm saying in this text. You and I are to preach the gospel of Jesus. We're to proclaim him as Lord in Christ as we preach Jesus, and then we're to call people to a response. And while we do that, we're to trust God with the results not our slick persuasion, not our knowledge, not our uh, ability. This morning I was reading in the book of Exodus. Do you remember about Exodus when Moses is to go down and get the people of Israel out of Egypt? Do you remember what he, uh, in the initial conversations he said with, with God? God, it can't be me. Like, I can't speak. I'm slow to speak. I've, I, I've got a stammering tongue. I, I, I can't do this. My question is, did God use Moses? Yes. We don't have it, have it all together as far as knowing all the answers. Let's just be faithful to preach the gospel, call people to repentance, and trust God with the results. As we exalt Jesus through our witness, let's pray for the Spirit to bring conviction and repentance. Do you remember what the response was that day? Verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Yeah, praise God for sure. That's nothing to sneeze at or to blink about. Like 3,000 people were saved on that day. 
You're like, it says the word souls. If you were here several weeks ago, I, I, I referred to the word soul, and the word in the Hebrew for soul is nephesh, and nephesh just simply means all of the person. So when it says 3,000 souls were saved, it actually means entire people. Like 3,000 people were saved that day. The Holy Spirit's powerful work that day concluded with 3,000 people saved. God can still do that today if he wants to, but he may not do quite that many in one setting and in this place, but God wants to do much more than what we're currently seeing. But what would happen if we as a church were bold enough to believe that God's Holy Spirit is still at work today, that his gospel still is true as it was 2,000 years ago, that there are still people in Bryan and College Station in our area that need to hear of Jesus, and he's leading us to be bold in our witness and calling people to response and seeing souls being saved. Can you imagine if something like this happened in our own lifetime? What if we saw something like this happen in our church? What if on any given Sunday, among Bible-believing churches in Bryan College Station, among all of us included, 3,000 people came to faith? How exciting of a day that would be. But then let me ask you this, is it what happens on this stage on a Sunday morning that brings salvation? It can, but that's not always the way salvation comes because you and I are now mobilized to go out throughout the course of the week and have conversations with people and salvation should be coming about any day, not just on Sundays. Will we take God's word seriously that says in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 that the Holy Spirit is coming upon us that we'll receive power from him and when he does we're to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth even Bryan College Station. Why aren't we doing this? And when I say we, I'm talking to me too. Why is it that I'm quick to preach Jesus on Sunday mornings and a little more reticent at other times? Well, maybe because I'm, I'm busy. Like, I got to go track a, track a coach team, coach a track team. I got to spend time with my family. I got to go to the grocery store and buy some groceries. I got to chill out a little bit and watch some TV, some football games. Or, and there are no games right now, which is scary. But I, I got to do all these things. God, I don't have time to preach you. I do it on Sunday mornings. Surely that's good enough. It's not, is it? Even as I just said, as I go to the grocery store, do you know that going to the grocery store could actually be a witnessing opportunity? Oh, surely not. I'm not going to go to H-E-B and tell somebody about Jesus. Why not? I don't know about you, but I don't want to put... I don't want to make demands of God, and I also don't want to put God in a box. And all I know is that on this particular day, in the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter preached Jesus boldly, and he called people to make a decision. And God chose and called on that day 3,000. This is our mission, too. And it's not about the 3,000. It's about being faithful in proclaiming the gospel every single time. And each individual person called to repentance and trusting God with his work. So I'm going to lead us in prayer.
At the end of the prayer, there's several ways you can respond. You could respond publicly here down at the altar. You could pull out a connection card and jot it down there. But my first question is, are you a follower of Jesus? Have you trusted in him for salvation? And if not, would you call on his name today? And if you are a follower of Jesus, is there repentance you need to make this morning for the lack of proclaiming and preaching the name of Jesus? Is there a friend in your life that God's prompting and prodding you and saying, hey, in the next seven days, talk to Sally and share the gospel with her? I'm going to be available here at the front. I'd love to pray with you. The altar will be open for prayer as well. We'll be singing a song or two as a church family. Let's take these next few moments to respond to God's word today and say yes to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Let me pray for us.